0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. My name is Ross, and uh, we are in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, and uh, we'll be in chapter 3 this morning. I'll begin by uh, making this statement that the crucifixion is the distinction between Christianity and every other religion in the world, that the, 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 the crucifixion is the distinction between Christianity and every other religion in the world. In in 1995, the New York Times uh, ran an episode, a a series of articles about a a nationwide civic dispute that took place in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, The Capitol Square Review Board there, um, they were in a dispute because uh, there was a a dispute about um, some Christmas uh, decorations being displayed. And the dispute... Uh, was over whether a cross could be displayed or not. And what they said about the cross, I'll I'll quote, it said it is, uh, what they concluded is, it could not be displayed because, this is the quote, it is the quintessential symbol um, of the Christian faith. So the civic authorities permitted um, in their In their display, they could have a Christmas tree, uh, they could have a Hanukkah menorah, but according to the articles, that when someone in Columbus, they tried to erect a cross on the public property, the agency refused on the grounds, and then I'll quote again, that unlike the other symbols, the cross was an exclusively religious symbol. Now that probably, so as as it's written, and as the uh, civic authorities, um, as as they came to that conclusion, that probably doesn't surprise us. But what might surprise us, or may come as a surprise to many of us, is that the exact opposite is actually true. I've been reading a book over the last several weeks called *The Crucifixion* uh, by. Uh, a writer named Fleming Rutledge, and it's a fascinating book, probably one of the best books I've ever read on the topic. And what she says, I'll, I'll quote her, she says this, actually what is true is that the cross is the most irreligious object to find its way into the heart of faith. One historical theologian goes to say this, Christian Becker says, the cross, he says it this way, the cross is the most non-religious and horrendous feature of the gospel. In 1991, PBS did a a series of of shows, a documentary, it was called um, The Christians, and the narrator said it this way, that Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering of and degradation of its God. The crucifixion is so familiar to us and so moving that it's hard to realize how unusual it is as an image of God. But that's exactly right. I mean, so after after all these years, it it's become something that is is iconic. It's become something that is comforting. It's become something that's moving. Um, something that actually we don't think much of anymore. But in the first century, it's something that would have been shocking, appalling. In fact, Paul calls it a stumbling block. You know, the reality is is that religion, if we defined it this way, religion or a religious system is a at its at its most simple level is a is a is a set of beliefs or ideas or practices projected out of humanity's needs wishes longings and fears so we have needs wishes long it, it, and so we project out of it what ends up becoming a set of ideas or beliefs or practices that That's a religious system. And so man's default is to look to religion to save him. And so that's why Christianity or faith is so radically different than religion. It's because no human being or system of belief would project their hopes, wishes, longings, and needs onto a crucified man. Well, this text this morning actually comes kind of at an end of a section here in, in Galatians chapter 3. Paul began this section. We've been looking at the, Paul's letter to the Galatians if you're visiting with us this morning or haven't been around here in a while, but Paul, he's, he's been writing to the Galatians. He he was the first to come into this area. He preached the gospel of Jesus crucified and buried and then Raised from the dead, and, and the the hearers heard it, and they believed, and so they they started these churches in Galatia. But shortly afterwards, there were these Judaizers, these Jews that came in behind Paul, and they began to say, "Look, Jesus is a good start, but listen, to be the people of God, you've got to become Jewish. You need to get circumcised and begin to follow the law." And they began to give them all these list of things to do. To finish the deal out. And so Paul's been writing. And he, he begins in chapter 3. He says, listen, you, you, Galatians, you're so foolish. I, I told you everything you needed to know about what Jesus has done. He's done everything. And they have bewitched you. It's, it's like they've cast a spell on you. And, and it's not all these things to do. And so in the section we looked at last week, Paul had gone back to the most prominent Old Testament figure, Abraham to say, look, I know these Jewish teachers have come and tried to give you this Jewish law, but look, if we go back to Abraham, we see it's always been about faith. It's never been about what you do. It's been about what you believe. And the big picture of this whole section, Galatians 3, 1 through 14, we're going to look at the end of it this morning, is that Paul's contrasting these two ways of life, of what makes you right before God. Is it what you do or what you believe is it is it the doing or is it the resting in what has been done? And this morning we, we see really what is one of the mountain peaks of all of Scripture, one of the one of the high places in all of Scripture. John Stott, an old theologian, he says this about this portion of Scripture Galatians three, ten through fourteen. He says, these verses constitute one of the clearest expositions of the necessity, the meaning, and the consequence of the cross. Paul expresses himself in such stark terms that some commentators have not been able to accept what he says. In fact, Paul, what Paul is going to say is actually so controversial some commentators don't even accept what he says. So, with that in mind, I want us to look at. It. I'm going to begin in verse 10. I'm going to read through verse 14, and we'll go back and we'll look at look at it. What it is that Paul says. He's going to 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 give you a lay of the land. Paul, in these few verses, is going to quote four Old Testament passages. Um, so so hang on, all right, and we'll we'll look at it. He begins verse 10. He says it this way: For for all Paul begins there in verse 10 and essentially what he's saying is that if you insist on the law to live by the law, to rely on the law, then you set a standard for yourself that you can't possibly meet. For all who rely on the works of the law, he says, are under a curse because it's written that cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Everyone is living under the power of God's curse, because the law has pronounced a curse on all who don't fulfill all the demands of the law. That is Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. That's what Paul's quoting. He goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. It's almost the end of Deuteronomy before the, the children of the wandering Israelites are going to go into the promised land. See, what had happened is, the Israelites, they, they'd, come out of, um, they'd come out of slavery of Egypt. God had redeemed them. And they'd cross the Red Sea and uh, through the wilderness, and they're sitting at Sinai. And in Exodus 24, what God does is he gives them this, this very first shot out of the deal. They're, they're sitting there in the wilderness. God comes says, I'm your God. Here's the, the, the commandments, Ten Commandments. Moses is there. And the people of Israel that have just come out of Egypt, you know what they say to God in Exodus 24? They say, oh, those are the commandments? Well, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we're going to do them. That's what they say. Everything God has said, we're going to do it. Well, Paul's actually quoting a verse from 40 years after that from a sermon to their children because they didn't do all that the Lord had said. And in fact, their children aren't going to do it either. So one of the questions is, well, well why the law? I mean, why, why, why give a standard that the people can't meet? And that's a great question, and we're actually going to talk about that next week because Paul does. But the question raised in verse 10, I mean, here, here's essentially the paradox of the question. It says this, that those who do the works of the law are cursed because Deuteronomy says that those who don't do the works of the law are cursed, if you followed that. That's, that's the deal. And here's why they had made a religious system out of God's word. See, they wanted a transaction, they, God had designed it for a relationship. God had told them, he said, look, first and foremost, he, a few, few chapters after this quote, he told him, listen, this is a relationship. First and foremost, this is a heart and a soul thing. God wants them to love him with, with all their heart and all their soul, and what they needed was God to do a work in them for them to be able to do that. He called it circumcising their hearts so that they could love him. The problem with the law was not the law. The problem with the law was sin. The problem with the law was them. The Israelites, they were commanded to love God and to serve Him above everything else. See, they were in covenant with Him. And you can think of covenant like a marriage. They were were like in a marriage with God. But see, God wanted them to depend on Him. To trust him, they didn't want to do that. See, they wanted to rely on the works of the law because they wanted to be people who were accepted on their own terms, on their own merits. They didn't want to depend on God. They wanted to depend on themselves. They wanted to be accepted for doing the right things, and that's a perversion of the law. And God said, no, I I just want want you to trust me. Love me, trust me, walk in my ways. Said so no, we're just going to obey the law. But obeying doesn't lead to love, typically. See, pursuing religion—that's that's a flawed way to pursue life. It's it's a pursuing religion is flawed. Here's what happens: you end up overestimating yourself. You end up underestimating God. That is what they did. It's the definition of somebody. Who's self-righteous. You overestimate your own goodness. You underestimate God's. And that was the issue with the Israelites. It's the issue that's going on in Galatia. And you know what? It's the issue that goes on today. Overestimating our own goodness. Underestimating God's. Ultimately we end up underestimating everybody else's around us. We have our own standards. We have our own standards. That we impose on everybody else around us. Except ourselves. I mean, we say things like I can't believe she did that. I can't believe he said that. Right? I mean, we if we were careful and we're not, if we listened to ourselves, those standards, I mean, people don't live up to our standards, but if we were careful and we're not, we don't live up to our standards. I mean, there's no way we can live up to our own standards. If we can't live up to our own standards, much less can we live up to God's standards. I mean, that's part of what happened in the fall. I mean, humanity, way back in the fall of of humanity, we usurped our position. We usurped our role. The role that belongs to God. We we set ourselves on the throne. We put ourselves on the seat of the bench of our own court. We were judging others out of a need to prove our own righteousness. We wanted to pronounce ourselves free and clear, free and righteous, and everybody else more or less guilty. And we have a hard time giving that up, don't we? I mean, hanging on to the illusion that, that we're innocent. He goes back to the garden. They eat the forbidden fruit. They come back. They're blaming each other. They're blaming the serpent. All the while, they're covering their nakedness, hoping nobody notices. See, when it comes to the law's standard, everybody has failed. Everybody is cursed. Everybody. Everybody. That's what Paul's saying everybody's cursed, and then in verse 11 he says, no one can be justified by the law. It's evident that no one's justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. To be justified means to be judged and to be found accepted. Now the truth is we all want that. I mean to be judged and to be found accepted? Accepted? I mean, we have this deep desire, I mean, to be judged and found accepted. I mean, we all want to be accepted. I mean, we're all trying desperately to be accepted. A few years ago, Rihanna had this song. It's not in my playlist anymore, but it's a it's song it, it um i mean it's such an honest song i mean it, just, listen to the words i'm not going to sing it but, but but listen to this the the title of the song is we all want love and she says it this way i can pretend that i'm not lonely but i'll be constantly fooling myself I can pretend that, I don't, that it don't matter, but I'll be sitting here lying to myself. Some say love isn't worth the buck, but I'll give every dime I have left to have what I've only been dreaming about. Everybody wants something. You've got to want something. What are you living for? Everybody needs something. fighting for something. I know what you're fighting for, because we all, we all want something there to hold we. We just want somebody, we all want to be somebody's one and only. No one wants to be left scared and lonely. I mean, that, that's as honest as it gets about the human condition. We want to be judged and found accepted. We want this. And the reality is, is how we're made, we want to be accepted by God. And, and Paul says in verse 11, but this is not going to happen by appealing to our record, by appealing to the things that we do. By the things that we do, by the list of the things that we have done, that does not bring us to a place of acceptance. The righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk and drawing back to what he said about Abraham. Abraham believed God and that was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. So here's what Paul's doing. He's building an argument here, a tightly argued Jewish argument. He's stacking Old Testament quotes on top of each other, and he's answering the question, how are we accepted before God? How how can you be accepted? How can you be righteous? How can you be right with? How can you be confident that you can be approved by God? How can be, you be confident that, that you can stand before God? Because this, this is a deep human desire. Where, where is our hope and longing? So remember religion? The, the, the ideas, the practices that emerge from our longings and our wishes and our desires the, the things that we're going to do and place our hope in. And Paul says, look, it's not religion. You're going to rest in what someone else has done. It's not the things you do. It's not the law. It's faith. And he's going to say in verse 12 that the doing and the resting are completely different from one another. Verse 12, "But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So here's what he means to live by the law. Here's what it means that the law and the faith are completely different. Now, before I tell you about the law, realize the problem is not the problem with the law is not the law. The problem with the law is me. I mean the problem with the law is not the law. The problem with the law is sin. Here's the the deal. The law law requires behavior contrary to your nature. I mean the law of God asks you to do exactly what you don't want to do. Opposite of your longings, of your desires of your, of your lusts. It calls you to love what you hate, to hate what you love, to desire what you don't desire, to, to not desire what you do desire. To, I mean, to live by the law is this battle your whole life. It is to run against the grain your whole life. You, you were not born with the natural inclinations to love what God calls you to love. Secondly, I mean, not, not only is it contrary to your nature, but the law requires behavior that's impossible. I mean, holiness is a high bar, and at best, Your good deeds, the Bible says, are filthy rags. Because your thoughts, your motives, your emotions, your moods, all of those are like wild beasts that can never be tamed. It's impossible. It's against your nature. It's impossible. The other thing is that the law demands perfection. Perfect, absolute perfection. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. And there's no bell curve. It, it never, ever relents. The law refuses to accept your good intentions. There is no A for effort where the law is concerned. This was the Jew... Um, the, the, the problem with the Judaizers that they thought they thought their good intentions counted. They do not. The law accepts no paybacks. It doesn't it doesn't allow you to pay back some error in the past with some good in the future. There's no way to wipe out even a single wrong. The law is unrelenting, it, it never yields. There are no cheat days, it never lets up, it doesn't get off early, there are no sick days, no vacations, ever. The law kills happiness. shame guilt remorse sorrow fear pain futility hopelessness restlessness anxiety depression the law deals in because it leaves you crushed under an oppressive and relentless weight you you cannot bear the weight of the law it's too heavy The law has one penalty. That's it. No matter how minor the infraction, one penalty, death. The law offers no salvation. It it cannot save you. The law listens to no repentance. It does not care. It offers no forgiveness, and it gives you no power no assistance. It demands everything. It offers you nothing. You're absolutely on your own. In fact, in in Romans chapter 7, Paul will say, it holds us captive. And our only hope is that somebody would come and rescue us. The only hope is that somebody would come and pay the debt that we owe. Our only hope is that somebody would come and pay the price. Come and and rescue us. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So I want you to see this morning, this right here, Galatians 3.13, this is where we see the beauty of Jesus. The absolute splendid beauty of Jesus. Maybe you didn't even know that this verse was here. But right here, the beauty of Jesus comes in its clear focus. Two things about this verse I want you to know: the two words. One is crucifixion. The other is substitution. Substitution. It's in these words Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. Redeemed means to be liberated from bondage. How did he liberate us? By becoming a curse. Christ wasn't cursed, he became a curse. The curse that we deserved, Christ became for us. In our, in our place, substitution. So why the sacrifice? Well, it's not that the law had to be satisfied. It's God's own character that had to be satisfied. So, so God has to be true to His, his majestic Perfection of his own character. And so on the cross, what happens is God's perfect justice and his gracious love come together. Now crucifixion. And I'm helped by Rutledge. Here, reminded of some things that I hadn't thought about in a long time, but crucifixion was a slave's death. So, so reserved for slaves. In fact, crucifixion would have been seen as a death of a nobody. So it was a death meant for suffering, yes, absolutely, an excruciating suffering. But more than suffering, it was a suffering that was meant to degrade, to humiliate, and to dehumanize. One writer described it this way, executed publicly, situated at a public, well-trafficked place, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion, were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. So amazing grace came at the disgrace of the Son. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, in the middle of all these places that Paul is quoting from, in in the harsh, what we would read as the harsh Law, the wilderness law. In Deuteronomy 25, it speaks about okay, you have this guy and he's guilty. I mean, he's he's guilty, caught red handed, guilty. And so they're going to administer the punishment, and the punishment is a a whipping, a lashing, the, the, the 40 lashes. And it says there, though, he's a brother. And you cannot administer any more than 40 lashes. You have to stop at 40. It commands the stopping at 40. And you know why it says to stop at 40? So that he is not degraded. So that he's not shamed. So he's punished. He's guilty. But he's still going to keep his dignity. See, crucifixion, the express purpose as means of crucifixion in the Roman Empire was this, I quote, the elimination of a victim from consideration as member of the human race. That the execution by crucifixion to eliminate them, not not just by death, but to so do it in a way that they would be not even considered at the end part of the human race. That's why Isaiah would say we could not even would not even could not even look upon him. See, that's why Christianity is so radically different from any other religion, like we said, because no human being or system of belief would project their hopes, wishes, longings, and needs onto a crucified man. What Paul's doing here is he's quoting from Deuteronomy 21-23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's a part of a section in Deuteronomy called the Um, statutes and ordinances from from Deuteronomy 12 to Deuteronomy 26 and it's written and there's it's a section and there's two threads in the section as you read it you would notice two things one of the threads you would notice generosity and compassion it um, deals with how to care for the poor, and the slaves, and how to deal with debt, and and tithing, and and hospitality. And then there's another thread that runs through the statutes and the ordinances, and that is what to do with lawbreakers, and offenders, and rebels, and false prophets, and idolaters. So for instance, in Deuteronomy 13, what what do you do with a city that has been overtaken? The inhabitants have been overtaken with idolatry. It tells you how to devote that city to destruction. In Deuteronomy 19, the execution of murderers is dealt with. In Deuteronomy 19 at the end of it, an eye for an eye, extelionis. In Deuteronomy 20, the Conquering of cities in the promised land, that's dealt with, although they didn't do that correctly. And then in Deuteronomy 21, just just before this passage, Paul quotes, What to do with a rebellious son? Listen to the immediate context. I'm going to read it. This is what's just before what Paul quotes. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, by, by the way, don't, don't go home and like, if you have a son, don't go home and like put this on the refrigerator. And then he comes in and he says, hey, what's this? And you go, oh, well, it's just the Bible. <laughs> it's, it's not, what you're going for won't happen, I promise, okay? But, Deuteronomy 21:18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother. It gives a little more details. Then it says this. All the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance." To what Paul is doing here, in effect, is saying Christ has taken the place of all the stoned and massacred and enslaved and defiled and beheaded idolaters and rebels and murderers and rebellious sons and everyone else who has suffered the curse under the law. He is suffering the curse, the curse that would have fallen on them. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He made Him, God made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther in his commentary, comments on this. All the prophets did foresee in spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer, etc., that ever was or could be in all the world. For He, being made a sacrifice for the sins of the world, is now not an innocent person and without sins, but a sinner. O merciful Father, our most merciful Father sent His only Son into the world and laid upon Him the sins of all men, saying, Be thou Peter the denier, Paul that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor, David that adulterer that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged on the cross, and briefly be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. See therefore that thou pay and satisfy for them. Here now comes the law and says, I find in him a sinner, therefore let him die upon the cross. So he sets upon him and kills him. By this means the whole world is purged. And cleansed from all sins. See, we have it at the heart, the only, the only religion in the world where God has given us a substitute, and the essence of sin is that we continue to try to substitute ourselves for God. The essence of being redeemed is that He's substituted Himself for us. The essence of sin is that we take only what God deserves when we took control of our lives. The essence of redemption is that He put Himself in our place and has taken what we deserve Religion comes and says, Here, you do this. Jesus comes and says, This is what I've done for you. 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. We'll look at the blessings of Abraham next week specifically. We receive the promised spirit through faith which means that in Christ Jesus we have more than just an example to follow. More than someone to look up to and try our, try our best to imitate or try our best to live up to. That's, that's not it. In Jesus we've been given His spirit. We've been given His power. We are one with Him. His life is ours. I'll never leave you or forsake you, he says. The same spirit that came down on Jesus says, You're my beloved child, and you, I'm well pleased that that spirit comes to us. Substitution. See, that happened to Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. It's, it's a story about. When Jesus, just before his ministry, goes to John the Baptist, who's out in the river, Jordan, and he's baptizing. And Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he says, baptize me. And John, his cousin, says, Well, wait a minute, that's not right. I, you're Jesus. You, you should be baptizing me because John knew, everybody knew, that baptism meant if you're, if you're being baptized, you're being baptized for the repentance of of sins. You're saying, I'm a sinner. I need to be washed clean of my sins. And John's saying, No, wait a minute. You're Jesus. You ought to be baptizing me. And Jesus says, No, no. For now, it's proper that we do it this way now. For us to do this, he says, To fulfill all righteousness. Because Jesus is essentially saying to John, I'm here as a substitute. My mission in life is not to be baptized like you should be baptized. I'm here not because I need it. I'm here not to repent in your place. I'm here to live in your place. I'm here to fulfill all righteousness. All, all, all righteousness. Oh, I'm here to take your place, John, so that someday you can take my place. I'm here to be baptized into you so that I can die for you. So you can be baptized into me and live with me. Jesus was baptized into humanity. He took our place. Because of that, Paul's going to write to believers that when we are saved. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone, we are baptized into Him. Did you not know, he says in Romans 6, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Praise the Lord. Not about what you do. It's about what he's done. And listen, this morning as we celebrate baptism, it's not about going into the water and coming out of the water. It's a symbol of what has already taken place by grace through faith in Christ alone. This, this is for us to celebrate. Clint, are we going to celebrate? Like big time? I'm going to pray... I'm going to turn it over to Clint. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We did not come as an example, but as our substitute. In Jesus' name.